Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. Hey Bainbridge, Office Expats, the co-working space in the pavilion is a shared office for those of us who work remotely. We have fast fiber Wi-Fi and organic coffee. Keep us in mind too as a location for board meetings, depositions, or treat your team at work to an island offsite. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Marcos Shear. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I don't, I don't see you enough. I've known you for quite some time. Your lovely wife was one of my son's preschool um, teachers at a great school, BCNS, that I think very fondly of here on the island. And uh, now that little man's twelve, so it's been it's been a quick minute. Wow. Yeah, yeah that has been a long time. I don't know if you knew that was where we first. Uh, I I did came not into realize cover. that. And then um, we were playing fantasy football um, for a season. Oh, oh, through the Plate and Pine League. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, for some reason I didn't make that connection. I didn't play this year. Right. Um, shout I've been out busy. To, shout out to full time fantasy sports and Ian Ritchie. Um, and then we have a mutual friend in Kevin Warren, the proprietor of the old NOLA restaurant and the Plate and Pint. You bet. And uh, shout out to Kevin Warren. Um, 
so I'm in there the other day and Kevin uh, pops in and he hasn't been as active cooking as he used to. But uh, he's like, oh, Tim, come here, come here, come here. And he's like, I need you to taste some food. You know, and I'm quite the foodie, I think. Um, I love to eat out. I love to cook. Um, mostly pescatarian um, is my diet. So he's like, hey, try this. And it was kelp. So I'm eating kelp um, raw at first or blanched. I don't know what blanched, it was. Probably blanched. And well, then, you can eat it raw. And then uh, had some kelp chowder. And then he made some kind of like a spinach artichoke dip. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and then he made some ravioli stuffings and it was all with kelp. And then I put two and two together. I was like, where's he getting this kelp? Why is he making recipes? And I was like, oh, he's, well, Marcos, they're good, good friends. You guys go way back, right? Yeah, we go way back. Uh, years. He used to be, uh, they used to be our neighbor and our kids kind of grew up together and, uh, yeah, they were just in the next cul-de-sac over and we spent, Many, many days of families together over the years. Yeah. So then I put two and two together. I was like, hey, where's Marcos been? And then I looked at your LinkedIn. And I was like, oh, he's not practicing an attorney anymore. He's got this uh, Seagrove kelp company. And why I don't see you is it's based out of Alaska. That is true. And I didn't know anything about kelp. And wanted to have you come in since you're in town today and tell me all about it. So you have um, quite a few acres in Ketchikan. Of, so how does this work? Uh, all right. So uh, the way uh, the mariculture we call in Alaska we call it mariculture, um, and primarily it's farming in the sea. Mm-hmm. The uh, the way it works is you you lease an area from the Department of Natural Resources and there's a there's an application process you go through and it took me several years to get this site approved and uh, and this particular site is now the largest approved multi species uh, aquatic farming site in North America. Um, it is a kelp and shellfish site. It's 127 acres. It is located on the west side of Prince of Wales Island, which is an island in southeast Alaska. So it, that's like the, the ugliest part of the world, right? It is unbelievably, <laughs> stunningly beautiful every day. It, yeah. Even when the weather's bad, it is gorgeous. You know, it's just amazing. And Prince of Wales is a pretty remarkable place. It's a it's an island that's roughly the size of Delaware. It's about 2,500 square miles, has about 1,000 miles of coastline because the coastline comes in and out and lots of bays and harbors. And, and there's a whole band of islands on the outside of it which uh, protect it from the Pacific's fury uh, in the Gulf of Alaska. So there's, there's just this huge area there that would be suitable for various activities. And there's a, there's a big fishing industry there. There's a big charter industry and tourist industry in that, in that area. And it's also where the Tongass National Forest is. So there's been uh, a lot of timber harvesting over the years, uh, for the last 50, 70 years, uh, or 100 years. And in uh, um, this particular uh, uh, opportunity, I... I wanted to uh, do something different, and there's a there's a whole uh, long history. I don't know how how 
how how when, how far back you want to go into where how this all started? Yeah, I want to go deep on this. I th- I think it's exciting. I think there's great nutrient value to kelp. I've never ate it prior to last week. I um, and what you think? Honestly, yeah, um, it was somewhat flavorless. I expected it to have a lot of ocean flavor, mm-hmm. be very salty, mm-hmm. perhaps smell fishy. It seemed like a soft celery to some extent. Yeah. Um, or, it, it didn't have a very strong, distinct flavor, but it it doesn't really matter because it's a complement complementary um, nutritional value. It's so nutrient-dense. I would definitely eat it. Yeah. Well, well, that's one of the things about it. And, and if, you, if you have it fresh out of the water, and, and so just to kind of put this in perspective, all kelps – are seaweeds, but not all seaweeds are kelps. And there's about 650 different uh, kinds of seaweeds on uh, on the West Coast and, and Alaska. This is what uh, kelps that we're growing are what uh, are considered brown kelps, which are macroalgae. So they're not technically a plant. They're a protist. And, a what? Uh, a protist. What so they word? are a plant and kind of a plant and animal mix because they way back in the primordial times they, uh, you know that they were the founding algaes were the founding uh, the the building blocks of all life on the planet and everything is derivative of of uh, of algaes in one way or another and where where algaes were uh, were. Um, uh, were common in these coastal communities. You saw, you know, the development of animal life. You saw the development of brains uh, and uh, intellectual capacity because of the nutritional components in in kelps. Wow. Yeah, there's a ver- very direct correlation between the existence of algae historically, and we're talking, you know, millions of years, millions and millions of years ago, and the development of life on the planet. And uh, uh, in so in a you know, and these particular kelps are more recent, but algae as a as a species were uh, uh, an essential component of the creation of really all life on the planet, and have been a have been a staple of diets of all kinds of creatures for you know, for hundreds of millions of years. So right now, I'm trying to have two of my three meals be vegan. Okay. For environmental reasons and cruelty to animals and all that. To not be cruel to animals, not to be cruel to animals, <laughs> right? <laughs> My question to you when you said that right away is, is kelp a vegan yes. food item? Yeah, it is. It's considered a vegan food item. Algae as well? Uh, algae as well. Okay. And, uh, and it is – so it has characteristics of plants. For example, uh, algae will photosynthesize um, – but they also are the only non-meat source of vitamin B12. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a supplement that you must take if you don't eat that, meat. That's a, it's, a, it's a big thing and it's an opportunity. And you know, for Asian cultures, they've been, they eat seaweeds every day. It's an essential component of their of their uh, diet in many different forms, whether as a dashi that they make soups from, or as you know, just eating the, the kelps themselves, or you know, the red seaweed that uh, turns into uh, they use to manufacture nori, which is the wrap around sushi, is another kind of which is delicious. Uh, it's another kind of seaweed, and those seaweed snacks you have at Costco and wherever those are all those are all a black seaweed. Uh, which and, is and those technically are farmed, red. right? And those are farmed, absolutely. Um, the the globally the the farm production of seaweeds last year was about thirty million tons. 
Wow. And, and I know in Oregon they have algae pools. Like- it, similar in some ways. Um, the algae is then used to make derivative products typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, uh, and there are algaes that are in kelps that are used to produce carrageenan and alginates. Uh, carrageenan is something that you've probably eaten in ranch dressing and ice creams and because it's a natural emulsifier. Um, and so you know, we've all been eating kelp-related uh, things in our diets for our entire lives, not as overtly as the as the Asians do, because they, I mean, it re- it's like herring to the Norwegians. I mean, it's it's available at every meal. They eat it all the time, and coincidentally, they have a lower incidence of heart disease, and they live longer. And um, it's not a coincidence. It is directly associated, I think, with their high fish diet and their high and the high component of uh, of uh, of seaweeds. Wow. So you were saying a little bit before we got on air that this might be your opus. This might be your calling. How did you get involved in, in thinking, uh, kelp, 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 I got to do something with it? Well, it actually the, – the, the whole path started really in uh, uh, 19 and, – and where we built this farm in uh, southeast Alaska started in the early 80s. Uh, my uh, I was in junior high, and my family moved to Prince of Wales Island in 1982. My mother and uh, uh, her then uh, boyfriend and my uh, we moved to Prin- uh, Prince of Wales, and they were tree thinners, which is reforestation. Basically, they go into an area that had been clear cut, and they um, they remove uh, all but every tree every 15 or 13 feet, and it allows the remaining trees to be more competitive, grow faster and straighter, and kind of help the recover. Forest, right? Yeah, help it recover more quickly from a from a clear cut, and uh, so we came up and uh, and I was some well, I must have been thirteen, and we had several units and we lived on Prince of Wales in uh, several places for several years, and when I was fifteen, um, you know, and from nineteen seventy six until uh, nineteen eighty four, we had lived in various very remote places and. Um, cabins in the woods basically without running water and electricity and and it was just hard and I was a teenager and I was dissatisfied with everything and like teenagers are and kind of like Bainbridge kids right yeah yeah exactly (laughs) I live on an island what are you doing to me what are you doing I've you know relegating me to this and then I ended up going uh so when I was 15 and this all tracks this is all part of this part of the origin story here uh i left home and uh when i was 16 i was i got emancipated and emancipation is when the court removes the disabilities of a minor to allow you to integrate a contracts and things like that so you can be an you know, adult legally an adult right so uh I, uh, I I spent a year at this small high school in uh, my junior year at the small high school in Prince of Wales at Cloak High. Uh, it's Cloak's a, a native community, and I boarded out with a family there. And then my senior year, I moved to Ketchikan, and um, and I needed a job. I needed to eat. I needed to pay rent. I had to do things. So I I re- the summer before my senior year, I reluctantly and you know I drug myself into this seafood company called Silverlining Seafoods that was about four years of operation and still trying to figure out what it was doing. Um, and I, I, I drug myself in there. I tried as hard as I could to act like I didn't want the job, and they, they hired me anyway. And I remember in the 80s, yeah. like, 
high school kids routinely went out on crab boats and fishing boats and, and stuff and, like that. That's how you made your summer money. And worked in seafood plants in Alaska. Yeah, it for was 90 very, days. You know, people go up there. I mean, Hillary Clinton went up and worked at a fish plant in Alaska when she was uh, in college. I mean, it's not a uh, – it was a very common thing for college students to go up and, and – Power your hours and save your money and live mm-hmm. in a tent and and uh, and then go back to school and most of the folks that I worked with were were college students, so I got a job with this seafood plant um, and uh, I remember the the principal's guy named Terry Gardner and I uh, I went talked to him and I said hey I hear you're looking for somebody and he said you got your gear with you. I said, oh, no, but I can be back in an hour. So I went and got some ring gear and boots, and I showed up for work. And uh, and that that job has uh, set me on the path to here. So I ended up, while I finished high school and, uh, and all the way through college, I worked uh, summers at this seafood plant, um, and that was Four or five five years all of, all in, and when I got out of college in 1990, I went back to work for them full time on the operations side. Ultimately, I spent 12 years working in the seafood industry for this company. What was the allure or glamour about it for you? Um, I could work lots of hours and make money. Um, you know, I was trying to when I was working. My goal was always to you know I wanted to do 100 hours a week because then I'd get 60 hours of overtime. And this was 19, late, late 80s. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm making seven, eight bucks an hour, you know, the half again. Uh, the, yeah, minimum wage mm-hmm. is like 325. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. You, you mm-hmm. could go and, and there wasn't anywhere else I felt that I could go and have that kind of reliable uh, income. And I was supporting myself. So, you know, every dollar mattered. And, uh, um, and so I did that, and then I, uh, in 1995, I decided, you know, I was, tw- what was I, must have been 27 or 26, 25, 26, and I decided that, you know, if I was going to go to graduate school, now was the time. And I decided to go to law school over getting an MBA or getting, uh, going to get my PhD uh, because I thought it was the most versatile of the, of the degrees. And then, um, and then I got a job uh, when I got out of law school with a uh, with a firm out of Seattle, a a guy that I ultimately learned was from Ketchikan. He was born in Ketchikan, and uh, I didn't know that at the time I interviewed with him. Um, uh, but he was a seafood industry attorney, and I wanted to try to leverage my prior experience into something that that mattered. So. Uh, so I started working for him in 1998, and we were uh, we worked together until I left to start this venture, and so nearly 20 years. Um, and I practiced in the seafood industry from um, California to the Bering Sea. Really, every I represented seafood processors and producers, and and a whole host of uh, of in related industries and vendors and that type of thing, and. Uh, so in 2007, I became involved with this group, this nonprofit in Alaska called the Alaska Fisheries Development Foundation. And its job, it was a, a nonprofit entity that was formed under the Magnuson-Stevens Act. And if you're familiar with the Magnuson-Stevens Act, it is the uh, – Magnuson, which was a senator from Washington, and Stevens, who was from Alaska, um, were the sponsors of this. And really, it is the – 
the structure under which all federal fisheries in the United States are managed. It creates the Pacific Council Network, uh, each or the council networks. There are eight uh, regional councils that involve stakeholders and agencies, and and they 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 oversee all the fisheries in their area. Like there's a Pacific Council, there's a North Pacific Council, there's a uh, South Pacific Council, and there's a couple of councils on the East Coast and and uh, and a Gulf Council. And so this uh, the the purpose of and mission of AFDF was to uh, to do to to help get new fisheries off the ground, primarily commercial fisheries. And um, and what what had uh, by 2011 2012, what we had realized, uh, and it wasn't hard to realize because uh, it was obvious. Uh, is that there weren't any new biomasses. There's no new fisheries to go target. The uh, the you know the the fisheries in the North Pacific, in my opinion, are the best managed fisheries on the planet, and it is the gold standard by which uh, fisheries are managed. Uh, they the optimum yield standards and you know the biomass assessment and um, and uh, and I think you know to be fair, they're also benefited by the fact that there is. Uh, there are fewer variables in those fisheries, whereas on the West Coast you've got you know 50 million people and all of the things that they do affect seafood and affect fish and you know it, you don't have that up there because it's just still the majority of Alaska and the coastal Alaska is still wild. You don't have to worry about broken sewers and uh, no. meth in your salmon and exactly the and plastics. You know, you're damming, you know, there's no no damming. You're not damming rivers. You don't have. I mean, just the, in, the inputs are so different in that, which I think allows them to be uh, better managed. You have you could, because they are able to. They have fewer variables to try to to try to be predictive when they do their management. And uh, so, because there wasn't any new fisheries, the emphasis for the last. 20 or 30 years has been how do we as an industry get more value from the fish that we have things like full utilization you know doing fish oils and a whole variety of products and uh, taking better care of all of of the fish and and uh, because there it really wasn't an option to go get more fish and so we had been doing this uh, process of trying to figure out where are we going to go and uh, AFDF is the only one of these fishery development organizations that were created in the mid-70s that still operated. Um, so we got together and, and we involved uh, uh, some consultants and, we, and this was in 2010, 2011, 2012. And we started looking at where are the opportunities in, in seafood in Alaska. And, uh, and we kept coming back to mariculture. And what mariculture means in Alaska is uh, farming of indigenous species that don't have a fin. Fin fish farming in Alaska is illegal, and that is not mm. likely to change. So there will not be salmon farming in Alaska. Uh, there will not be halibut and black cod and a lot of other things that are, that are occurring in other areas uh, don't occur in Alaska, and that's not going to change. But what we also saw is that we have the Alaska seafood industry as this uh, uh, terrific in- infrastructure. There are every uh, coastal city has a seafood processing facility that is underutilized. Most of them are built for a particular species. In southeast Alaska, it's salmon, 
which occur between June and and the end of August, uh, and they're designed to handle the peaks of those, and the, and most of them for the rest of the year are dormant or or nearly dormant. So there's this uh, this tremendous processing capacity that's available locally. Uh, you have a uh, these coastal communities have fishing vessels that can that are available. You have you know people you know as I fond of saying yeah, if if there's nothing if, uh, anyone in southeast knows how to do better than work on a boat in crappy weather i mean because they grew up in it it's part of the culture it's part of who they are uh teaching them you know if you're doing economic development teaching them to code or do other things or things which are just inconsistent with everything they've ever experienced in their life mm-hmm. but but this isn't this fits what they do this and what they know and they have boats and they have experience and so we kept coming back to this concept of mariculture and then you know we couple that with the fact that mariculture is such a um it's a non-extractive economic model which is uh really carbon neutral right well each one has its own car different carbon footprint like car uh we expect this kelp farming operation to be carbon neutral or or perhaps negative that we will remove more carbon from the environment than we than we utilize uh how do you do that well because uh kelps as a as a species are about 20 times more effective at removing carbon from their environment than a tree so really uh and you can measure how much carbon they they remove by the carbon content in the in 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 the kelp isn't the carbon in the air though no, it's carbon's in the water. Ocean acidification, uh, the cause of ocean acidification is carbon uptake in the water. This carbon dioxide goes down in the water, and kelps will then remove it, take carbon and, and nitrogen out of the water. So a kelps are a natural uh, – Filter, kelp, right? They're, well, they're a natural counteragent to ocean acidification because they are such an effective carbon, carbon sink. Now, does eelgrass do the same? Uh, to a lesser extent, it's different, and the populations aren't as large. Um, yeah, because I heard we we're starting to lose a lot of our eelgrass around here. Well, eelgrass is a that's a that's a whole different conversation. You know, what is it that causes eelgrasses to uh, populations to decline? It can be a whole variety of things, including water temperature and uh, and uh, changing uh, intertidal zones and. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's a whole, that's a entirely different conversation. Um, all right. Tabled. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and I, I don't know enough about it to, you know, I think mm-hmm. to speak intelligently about it. My, uh, um, uh, the, uh, Dr. Tiffany Stevens, who I hired to, uh, to be our chief scientist and researched and has done a tremendous amount of work in the, um, in the seagrass realm, as well as being uh, a uh, an expert on seaweeds, she did her doctoral dissertation on macrocystis physiology at the University of Otoa. She's she's pretty remarkable. Where's uh, Otoa? Otoa. It's in New Zealand. Most so, beautiful place in the world. One of the most, yes, indeed. It, and a lot like Alaska, particularly the south end of the South Island, is you know the coastal regions and the biomasses are and the, the uh, are are very similar in many respects. I've never been to Alaska, but uh, it's on my bucket list. You you better get there. Yeah, maybe it's I'll come close. come visit you. Please do. It'll be fun. Uh, but I've been to New Zealand, and 
I was blown away with the natural beauty and the resources there and how well they take care of that country. Very similar. State uh, versus country, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Very, very similar in some ways. Hey, what is a red sea cucumber? So giant red sea cucumber is, uh, they're related to starfish. And uh, they are a, um, um, they are a, I don't know how to describe them, they're, they're they they look like a spiky tube cucumber that lives on the bottom, and they have the very similar uh, kind of mobility that a starfish has. They're in the same family. Um, they are a uh, uh, a very much sought after food source for uh, for a variety of, of cultures around the world. And are you dabbling with that? That it, we aren't directly, but we're thinking it's something I'd like to get into. Um, uh, for a host of reasons, it's just you know the and there are giant red sea cucumber uh, is a commercial fishery in Alaska and it also has a pretty vigorous population um, and it's also something that uh, on the restoration side uh, it's it's a popular food item for sea otters and there's this uh, mm. a huge vol- number of sea otters in southeast Alaska in particular and they are just they're devastating the population, so of crab and urchins and you know really uh, everything. Uh, Whatever's delicious. Yeah, you know, when they eat, you know, about fifty pounds a day, and you, you know, there's seventy thousand of them in the in the region. So they'll, you know, when they when they hit an area, if if it's on the bottom, and even they'll even dig gooey duck. They are, you know, and they'll they'll take turns going down, and they'll each. You know, and work on it until they get that gooey duck out of the water, and then they'll pull it out and they'll pull it up and eat it. And, and yeah, that, I've gone gooey ducking. It ain't easy. It's it's not easy. You know, imagine you had to dive down to do it, and they and by by God, they do it. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, couldn't imagine without having thumbs. <laughs> and you're getting into shellfish too. Uh, it's another uh, another component of it. Um, yeah, uh, quill scene out of out of business. No, <laughs> no, the you know the global uh, like. Pacific oyster industry is is also very large. I mean, there's you know uh, six thousand tons of, of oysters produced globally a year. Again, most of them are in uh, the vast majority in China. Uh, the Pacific oyster is actually a Japanese oyster that was imported into the United States for cultivation uh, in the early 1900s. Um, uh, the the during the 1800s, the, U, the United States was the largest exporter of oysters on the planet wow. uh, by, by not even a, uh, a close margin. The oyster, the eastern oyster populations, which uh, extended from uh, Canada all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico, were you know, they're, they're just incredibly huge until they fished them out. Um, yeah, I noticed the oyster population has really diminished here on Bainbridge Island. Yeah, and but that was uh, so the the local oyster was uh, primarily the Olympic oyster, which is the smaller ones, and their population was naturally uh, has diminished, but it's also never been super large, not like the. Well, I remember walking around here, and you just pick them up and shuck them right on the beach, and now you rarely see them. Were those uh, Pacifics or, or Olympics? I don't know. I was a kid at the time, but uh, they, it was like probably it was like litter on the beach when probably it was Pacifics. And I don't. Maybe it's water temperature. I I don't know mm-hmm. uh, why that population has declined. What, what do you know about red tide? And and are we ever going to get rid of the red tide around here? No, no. It's a natural algae bloom. It's a particular kind of algae that uh, we don't have anything to uh, counter that algae. Uh, not really. Uh, they don't. They don't really uh, um, understand 
why those blooms occur. Um, they are, uh, you know, what are the specifically the conditions in the water that cause these uh, these algal blooms to uh, to blow up and and um, uh, you know, and it will happen in an area one year and you won't see it again for several years. I mean, it's entirely possible. And different species of, of shellfish have different retention rates. You know, for example, a bunny butter clam collects it and holds it, can keep it for several years. Oh. But an oyster can flush out in 30 days and uh, and be uh, be safe to, safe to eat. So uh, very different, you know, species-specific uh, uh, interactions with red with uh, red tide or the, that t- particular kind of algae. Is there much red tide in Alaska? There's some, yeah, oh yeah, and, 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 but again, it's it's very highly variable. Uh, it's highly variable. It'll occur in some areas, and um, and, uh, and every year, and some areas it won't. So how do how, do you do that? What um, the oyster farming by? How do you collect them? Is it just reeling in ba- oyster bags, or do you scuba dive down? And every every uh, oysters are not indigenous to Alaska. Uh, oysters, uh, uh, the Pacific oyster is allowed to uh, be cultivated up there primarily because it was being cultivated, it grandfathered in, it was being cultivated before statehood, which mm. was uh, uh, 1959, I think, uh, is when Alaska became a state. And uh, the water is too cold. They don't reproduce in Alaska's waters because the temperatures don't get high enough for them to go into their reproductive uh uh, cycle, the waters down here are, and and but there is also a difference in the way they're cultivated. Most of the Washington oyster cultivation is intertidal. It means it occurs on the on the beach on the uh, and they come out of the water every other tide and you know every tide and they get heated and cooled and and so they will, will produce uh, reproduce naturally in this environment. Um, most of the the oyster production in Alaska is suspended culture, which is uh, basically they are hung in bags or trays, trays in yeah. in the water and not actually an on-bottom culture. Um, and primarily because Alaska, particularly in southeast Alaska, it's the shore. Most of the shores are rocky, and mm. there isn't big, uh, big intertidal, flat intertidal zones uh, that they have in Washington. And another reason is that. Uh, most of Washington's tidal areas that where shellfish propagation occurs, um, or in Alaska, you'd have to lease that from the state because the state owns everything from mean uh, mean low tide out. Uh, in Washington, in the early 1900s, the state wanted to uh, push shellfish aquaculture in in the state, and they sold fee simple title to those those tidelands. So when you think about uh, Hamahama or or Taylor shellfish, or okay, getting hungry. Point. They they all they they own their tidelands, which oh, is which is why why they operate on on the way they do. We don't Alaska doesn't do that. Yeah, it's a whole different scene over there with the quill billies, as we like to call them. Yeah, it's great stuff, though. I mean, they yeah. great product. It's great, you know. It's great uh, for the local uh, economies to have this kind of uh, really sustainable and renewable and and restorative uh, qualities of of shellfish. Mm-hmm. I got a couple more questions about kelp before we get out yeah. of here. Um, is kelp in supplements? 
Kelp is used in a whole. It's used in supplements. It's used in nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, uh, cosmetics. Uh, there are a couple of qualities that are particularly. Uh, Interesting. Uh, kelp has uh, most kelps has a uh, material iodine content, so it's used mm. as a naturopathic thyroid treatment. Um, you know, you have iodine in salt and things like that because it is a necessary nutrient that everyone needs, and uh, so it's a source of that. It's also got uh, it's got omega threes. It's got potassium. It's got uh, fiber, right? F- fiber, protein. Um, it has some protein. Uh, it is it the protein content varies a lot depending on where in its reproductive cycle it is. So, what, what could we compare it to? Um, you know, it would be like a like a grain, I guess, uh, would be a close comparable. Not not like a soybean, which has you know thirty forty percent protein content. It's not as high as that. Uh, it'd be like a um, uh, yeah, like like a grain. It's fascinating to me that it's such a high B12 content because my dad told me that um, because I got on the supplement kick for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm way off it. (laughs) I take two supplements, uh, vitamin D and vitamin B12. And now I know that I can get B12 from kelp. Um, And B12 occurs in, in animal proteins, correct? Yes, typically that's where they and even when and you get nowhere a, else. And when you get a B12 supplement, it's usually derivative from an animal protein. That's another thing. I I feel people including myself, definitely myself, need to take a bit better interest in where things are sourced. And supplements is the number one thing that you should look at where, where it's sourced. Where they're sourced. Well, the you know, that is one of the one of the things that I, I think seaweeds and kelps ought to be a, a we need to make them a larger part of our diet, a, a component of it. Uh, like you said, the the seaweeds are very versatile. You, know, you take uh, uh, what you were eating in 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 the kelp ravioli was uh, um, Alaria marginata, which is a ribbon kelp. It's an intertidal kelp. It's a uh, it's like a heavy green. You can use it in a whole host. I, think I was eating bull kelp. Well, that's in the that was in the chowder. So the chowder oh, okay. has got bull kelp, uh, bull kelp stipe, and it's also got uh, Alaria you know, bull kelp, the Nereocystis lutkana, and the Good word. Uh, yeah, it's great. Scrabble uh, players out there, uh, take note. And uh, Alaria marginata is the ribbon kelp, and you take the midrib out of the ribbon kelp, and uh, the uh, uh, the blade, not including the midrib, was what's used in the in the ravioli. The midrib and the and the bull kelp stipe was used in the chowder uh, because it has, you know, it's got that great texture. It, you know, it feels yeah. a lot more like a like a clam than than something else. Um, so. Yeah, it's not rubbery and it's easy to digest, I think. Back back to my dad real quick. I don't think I finished that, but he said, I, I hope you get your necessary nutrients through food and not supplements. And that kind of stuck with me for a long, long time. And now I, I purposely eat s- certain legumes, mm-hmm. whole grains, flax at different times, and I have reminders to do that, you know. So it's really exciting to me that now I can add – kelp to that and maybe get off the b12 which if i want to be more vegan leaning i should know where the hell that i'm getting that b12 supplement from and is it derived from meat or is it derived from kelp 
Well, m- most of the supplements that I'm aware of are all meat derived. Is that is that a? Uh, I'm not aware of anyone that's doing uh, B12 derivatives from kelp. Have we just stumbled on the best idea ever? It may have. Well, nice. I mean, I I I think just eating kelp, uh, you know, if we included it uh, in your everyday diet, I mean, you could, you know, you can make. Uh, you can you can make Asian foods with it, but you know we've been fo- focused on doing not really not Asian foods because it's it could be used anywhere a heavy grain like a spinach or a kale can be used. You can make salads. We did this Mediterranean salad uh, from uh, ribbon kelp from malaria. It was fabulous. Um, we did one of the things that we that we that we did is we use uh, sugar kelp to make a vegan soup stock. So, uh, you know, uh, because it has this great umami flavor and it, because of the carbohydrates in it, it acts as a thickening agent. So, uh, mm-hmm. which is a natural thickening agent. So you get this, uh, this soup stock and the chowder is made from that vegan, uh, from that vegan soup stock. And it's an alternative to chicken and beef and, uh, uh stocks that were, are you know, more typically available on the market. I guess I don't think I've asked this question. You're farming kelp. What are you doing with it? So, uh, so we're we're farming three kinds of kelp, and we have kelp in the water now. We built the nursery uh, in Ketchikan, which uh, we have uh, we have ribbon kelp, sugar kelp, and bull kelp um, uh, uh, babies in the in the farm. Um, we have uh, there's about we released uh, somewhere around twenty five or thirty billion kelp spore this year. Uh, we take our seed stock from wild, uh, wild, the wild population because that's what uh, the, the law allows, uh, requires that you can only do indigenous species. So if it lives in the water, we can grow it. And uh, so we've chosen these three particular kelps because they are, they're very different. Um, each one has a different application. Uh, the sugar kelp would be used in this vegan broth, for example. Uh, you could uh, you blanch it and slice it, and you could have it in like a seaweed salad. Um, the uh, the alaria is like a heavy green. You know, we'd be used it as a as a substitute for spinach. Uh, um, in really any application, you would use it, and because. You can control the kind of sea flavor of it by how how long you blanch it and what how much salt is in the in the water when you blanch it allows you to really control that flavor. You can have the real kind of uh, sea flavor to it, or you can you can blanch it longer and at a higher temperature, and then it becomes very much like whatever it's with. You know, if you mm-hmm. have it with the stuffing, kind so of takes on the flavor of what yeah. it's cooked with, like tofu does. Yeah, you can do really any anything you want with it, and uh, and it uh, and and it's a really nice tissue because it doesn't it doesn't break down through freezing or through preparation because these kelps live in these environments where they get beat to hell every day, and they're and they're designed to survive. And uh, kelps uh, are the fastest growing uh, with plant on the planet you know bull kelp will grow a foot a day in yeah. the right conditions it's just amazing stuff and which is why it makes such a great and sustainable aquaculture because we can uh without adding and we don't add fertilizers or any nutrients or anything we can put this in the water now and say we'll, we'll plant in, uh, in october and november and we'll harvest in may and it's a really fast growing efficient uh Amazing! It's the most sustainable aquaculture on the planet, without without a close section. Oh, so, it, does it have to go into the bottom of the ocean to grow, or 
Can well, you do it in trays or you can, bags? Or? You can do that. What we do is a suspended culture. Well, basically, uh, in the nursery, uh, you you introduce the spore to a – it's basically a twine wrapped around a, a piece of PVC. And then it's cultured in these circulating filtered seawater tanks where you control the light and nutrients and temperature and and you get them to germinate from the spore to the gametophyte phase. And then the gametophyte is the male and female and they release an egg and sperm and form the uh, – uh, uh, which is kind of the animal characteristic to it, which forms the seed that then germinates into what we call a sporophyte, which is the juvenile uh, juvenile kelp plant. And we do – uh, we do the, all of that basically in a laboratory in this nursery that's uh, where we control all of the inputs. Uh, once it reaches a certain size, then we take that piece of PVC out in the farm and we use a piece of uh, three-eighths or half-inch uh, nylon line. And we run that line through the PVC and then the, the seeded twine will, will spool off around that – around that grow-out line, and that grow-out line ah. is suspended in the water about seven or eight feet under the surface um, in the, uh, at the farm. So uh, you plant it in the fall, and then over the course of the season, uh, you'll, it kind of goes a little bit dormant during the winter, and then when the sun starts to come back in the spring and the days get longer, that's when it really starts to grow. And what we've done is it's like a greenhouse for, for baby kelps. And we take these, we grow them in this greenhouse, and we start them, and they'll uh, be about four months ahead of their their wild um, brothers and sisters, uh, because those spore will they broadcast uh, the, their spores. They'll float around in the water, and these spore have a little flagellum on them, like a sperm, and they'll mm-hmm. they'll swim over until they find a spot, and they'll attach uh, and attach to it. They wait to the spring until the light gets and it warms up, and then they. Uh, they germinate and form their new plants. And what we've done is basically we do that in a uh, about four or five months in, adva- in advance so that when growing season hits, they're already ready and they're established and they're attached to these uh, grow-out lines and, and then they get to go. I'm starting to visualize what the nursery looks like now. Does that – with 127 acres, how does the boat traffic um, work? Um well, you want to move slowly, but uh, but the grow out array where where we grow this kelp is uh, it's called a cantonary array. Where basically there are rows of buoys on each side, and then there are hmm. uh, these lines that you would uh, these rings that you attach your grow out lines to. Uh, this particular array is three thousand feet long and six hundred feet wide, so we can put in about three hundred uh, grow out lines in this array. Um, and then they're attached to each end, and there are buoys and line anchors on them that hold them at depth, so you can control their depth all the way across. And the way the system is designed, it it puts tension on uh, lateral tension on these uh, lines, so they always stay at the same depth in the water. And you put them in about uh, about two or three meters below the surface, because that's where uh, you get below that, and your the the light penetration, which is essential for them to grow, becomes less and less as you go deeper into the water. So, so we want to. That's the optimal depth that we try to keep them at. Now, do you have competition in this industry, or is this something that is is kind of new? Uh, it's it's relatively new to Alaska. There are uh, several farms outside of Kodiak and one outside of Ketchikan that have existed for a few years, uh, much smaller in scale than what we're what we're doing. Um, 
There are some farms that have existed in Maine and Connecticut for some period of time. Again, uh, smaller than what this is. Uh, you know, I my vision of this was, you know, if we're going to do this, we need to do it at a at a scale that uh, that gives it the largest potential to succeed and continue. Um, you know, I feel like that if, if we do this and do this well and do it responsibly and sustainably, um, that it, it, it's a paradigm shift for Alaska's coastal regions where we can do sustainable, non-extraction-based uh, um, uh, occupations that, you know, that can, we can do this for the next hundred years and, and it, and it, and it's not only is it good, but it's additive to the environment because, it, like I said, it is a counteragent to ocean acidification, and uh, um, and it's such a sustainable form of aquaculture. I notice the kids, especially my son, just loves that um, seaweed that you get at Costco. Mm-hmm. Can you dehydrate kelp and eat it like that? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, most of the Asian kelps, they will take the same kind of kelps or different, uh, maybe different species mix, but their their primary. Uh, the primary thing is to take it and dry it, and then uh, you can reconstitute it and mm-hmm. eat it uh, eat it that way, like soups and stuff. Uh, in soups, and like if you had a miso soup, you know, there's a kelp a kelp in that. Like the alaria would be a, a kind of kelp you'd taste in a miso soup. Why is miso soup so good? Uh, it's well, it, the part of it's the dashi, part of it's the kelp. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what gives it its really unique flavor. the The snacks that you eat are. It's a you know the black kelp is a is a specific type of kelp that that produces that flavor profile. But they also when they roast them, they also add flavors to them. So there's a whole you know you can have a variety of them. Uh, these kelps you can do the same thing with uh, if you wanted to. But it's really a, a different. This is more like a wakami type kelp and uh, in application. There's also like the bull kelp is used in uh, you know, folks in Alaska that have. Uh, commercially producing kelp salsas and pickles. The, the the stipe of bull kelp makes a great pickle. You slice it, and it, have you ever had a watermelon pickle? No, uh, but it, but I've had that bull um, kelp like a pickle. It, yeah, it's, it's really, very similar texture. Yeah, it's really it's really good, and uh, it's used in relishes. You you can make chutney with it. Uh, you can make a whole variety of products, and there's a whole. Uh, Kind Sounds of, like we need to get you on the Food Network. Oh, it's you know the 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 growing and the business part's cool, but the products and the opportunity. Kind of go back to your earlier question: What are we doing with it? Well, I come through the food side, so I want to make food mm-hmm. because I think that this is. I want to make this available to uh, to everyone so they can use it in, which means it has to get into supermarkets. It has to get into products that people are familiar with. So they eat it like the chowder or the ravioli or whatever it may be, whatever that delivery system is. So people will go, wow, I thought this, this is really good. Or this is something that, you know, with the nutritional profile and the sustainability uh, reality that's associated with it, I mean, there's nothing in the market that comes even close to kind of checking all of those boxes. And I mm-hmm. think that's where uh, that's where the value is going to be in this is trying to trying to introduce that in a broader uh, so people eat it every day. Jabba juice. Get it a- get it in the smoothie markets. And you know, and there's a there's a company on the East Coast that's doing uh, little kelp cubes uh, to get into that. It's a small Bullion scale small scale thing, but it's a yeah, but basically make kelp ice cubes and you can drop them in your your jamba juice smoothie as a you know like your uh, wheat very cool yeah you know, your wheat grass or whatever it is and 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 it 
delivers a, a... I never thought about like uh, blending wheatgrass and kale and stuff like that and putting it in an ice cube tray. That's kind of a smart idea. Pretty simple stuff. I throw it in a glass of water or something. Yeah. So uh, what are you currently doing distribution-wise with your kelp? Well, this is our first year. We're planning our... F- we started building out uh, the nursery and the farm site uh, in uh, in this summer. So that's uh, taken, what, three years to get to this point or something? Well, it took me... I started the process in 2015, kind of trying to put the business plan together, figure out, you know, how do I make this work? Uh and then I had to uh, get the site lease through the mm-hmm. process, and the state had never considered anything of this kind of scale and complexity before. So uh, cool. it, it took some it took some work to get that through. You're the kelp um, father, then. Uh, well, at least at this kind of this business model, and um, uh, and and this scale, and then it took me a couple of years to raise capital to to get the project off the ground. Uh, we closed on that in December of last year, so a little less than a year since we got funded. Uh, we've you know we've put the whole thing together. It's it's been uh, which is why I've I've been traveling a lot. But it, it, um, so is your hope to have a IPO or something? No, I don't think that's a reality for this particular scale of operation. Uh, but uh, but I do think this is the beginning of the beginning. I think there's opportunity. Yeah, you're, for you're in ground floor. Mm-hmm. And how are you going to distribute the first batch that you process? Uh, so our first harvest will be in May, um, and we are hoping for somewhere uh, in the range of a million pounds of uh, of kelp to be produced. And wow. um, and so we are working in uh, really three different areas. Uh, one is uh, working with uh, some. Uh, uh, potential customers that are in the value-added product development side, you know, where say they're going to make uh, make other products with kelp as a component uh, for a retail-ready application. So, you know, by for example, by uh, as in salsas or as, as you know the 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 chowder could be a ready-to-eat chowder product uh, for a, a vegetarian uh, chowder product, which I think I'd really be excited about. Um, and uh, and then for food service, where say you do a blanched frozen product, where you would sell it to a Kevin Warren or a Plate and Pint, and they could make products, make food with it, whatever they wanted to do. And we have a number of recipes that we've developed to help them kind of introduce the concept to their uh, to their customers. Things like like uh, there's a tzatziki sauce, and there's a uh, you know and, and salads and various things. There's uh, we actually made a a, a uh, bull kelp, uh, you you know those like those sugared chocolate dipped cher- uh, orange slices. If you ever yeah yeah yeah, those? yeah. well you can those. you can do that with bull kelp stipe. You slice it long way and then you prepare it really in the same fashion and dip it in chocolate, and it's amazing. Really, yeah, it got great texture, great. So there's a whole host of products. You know, once you, I I'm I feel like once you breach that that uh, that uh, expectation you know and be get get these chefs so they can have some familiarity with it and start let their you know, their creative juices flow there's all just just a million different ways that they can so how did can kevin get a hold of that kelp did you just uh, bring it uh, back in your pocket uh, day or no <laughs> well i brought it to him of course uh and uh, uh see this is why i'm bi batman i i find out and put the pieces together and i'm like okay yeah we gotta have a conversation about this yeah so i i went out and uh so 
uh, I went out and got a special permit, which allowed me to do some limited wild harvest in Alaska. And I went into and we I went out and you know and got my snorkel gear on, and mm-hmm. you went and collected these uh, collected these kelps, and we put them in the boat, and we took them to a local seafood processor, and we uh, we processed them and froze them and shipped them down from Alaska, and then I I brought that product to Kevin, so he could uh, try doing some experiments. He actually did a uh, like a crab cake with kelp. It was amazing. I hope he puts it on the menu because it was really good. All right, Kevin, that's something you did not make for me the other day, so I'm I'm ready to taste the crab cake for sure. Wow, this is super exciting, Marcos. I'm so happy that you came in and talked about um, Seagrove Kelp, Kelp Company. You got a website or anything that people uh, could uh, learn more about it? Yeah, we do. Uh, we're like everything else. We're uh, we're in the beginning stages. We have a SeagroveKelp dot com is our website. Uh, we are active on Facebook. Uh, we have a uh, Twitter at uh, at Seagrove Kelp. Uh, we have uh, some Instagram presence. I'm uh, you know the the uh, other folks are managing that for me. I'm kind of limited in that. I'm not even sure I could log on to Instagram. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting. It's a kind of project that we can, you know, that I, I hope I can look back on and say, man, I did something really cool there. Yeah, you, you, you have. You don't have to look back. You can continue to look forward that you're doing something really cool. And I appreciate these efforts. This is definitely thinking outside the box. I mean, if you didn't have capital I, and this was my business, I'd be on Shark Tank tomorrow. I, I sent several applications into Shark Tank and, and got crickets in return. So Let, I think it was a little outside their space. All right. Uh, Marcus, on the profit, we need you to come jump started even further. Because this this should be a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, I I think so too, and I think that uh, that it, it is. This is like I said. This is the beginning of the beginning, but really special things are going to come out of this. And uh, once we you know once once we really get rolling, we're, uh, we're going to continue to to grow more and do more and uh, try some different species like reds. You know, there's a red seaweed that you can uh, fry in it, and it tastes like bacon. Wow. Yeah. So any chefs out there that want to mess with kelp, I will definitely um, sample your food. That sounds exciting. And uh, is there currently any place you could just go to Whole Foods or something and grab some kelp off the shelf? Unfortunately, no. Other than the, the not the, unfortunately, that means you're going to be the first. The, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm working on. So that's one area, and we also want to put it in pet food uh, as a, uh, because of the the nutritional profile is just uh, you know the potassium and the magnesium and all of the the various uh, things. It's great additive to uh, really natural pet food. Yeah, mix that with uh, yams or something, and sure, make some biscuits. Yeah, make a you know a whole variety of pet foods it's used in you can use it in cattle feed did you know that there's a red seaweed that if you feed it to cattle they they don't produce methane no it was, what i kid you not there is a red seaweed that when you uh, introduce it as one percent of a cattle feed they don't fart wow it, talk about environmental uh benefits it is it is really uh we need to get you in front of the paris climate action committee more yeah we got to we got to grow red seaweeds that's a that's our that's that's on the list of things we want to do after we get this first one figured out all right keep me in mind i want to monitor this i want to be a part of it and i want to digest kelp on on the daily so um 
Well, I appreciate I, it. I would love to be able to provide it. Thank you so much for letting me come and talk to you about this. No, it's my pleasure. This is an exciting times, exciting conversation, and um, I'm glad you were in town today and that we could carve out some time to have this conversation and share it with other people that may not know anything about kelp. It's the beginning of a great adventure. All right. Marcos Scheer from Seagrove Kelp Company in Alaska. Thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. Be kind. Up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the door in. Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end, so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end. I wake up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the door in. Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end, so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end. Uh, you come to my hood and tell me how to live, I think I'm good. That's not how it is. How it works So hours I work On my craft Like I'm leaving the earth Like trees in the earth Getting deep in the dirt Not for reason I search That's for the birds Like the season that turps You see yeah. At first You're the only thing I need on this earth Then Well you're the only reason I hurt At first You're the only thing I need on this earth Then Well only reason I hurt, maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it But I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it So now I can't have your big lips Just wanna love you for real though But when you come to work, you wear your still toes So you can't feel, no access to your seal So and so, I gotta pay the bill though And get fed, barely have the meal slow Girl, yeah, love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end So my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins and it don't end So my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, See, me, I always been a thinker See, you telling me we gon' sink uh, Don't compute in my brain, I don't just shoot I'm careful of my aim and I'll be shooting to you Care for the same, on the same tree like some pairs I'm just saying, we all have prayers for the same Already there is the plane, cop you a ticket Have you a visit to where this is First, you're the only thing I need on this earth then But you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth then But you're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rain Yeah